This is an ABC podcast. This is Science Friction. I'm Natasha Mitchell. And in recent shows, I've been bringing you all sorts of staggering stories about kids. Stories I've collected over the years about children whose lives have intersected with science in extraordinary ways. And today's story is one I will never forget. One of a kind. In it, a chance encounter a medical mystery, a detective quest, science at the cutting edge, and one hell of a tenacious kid. We were talking one day about garden gnomes and, you know, people not liking them and that, and this was when he was young. He said, Mum, what's a a garden gnome? And I said, oh, it's a a sort of a cartoon statue of a a dwarf person. He said, oh. Anyway, we'd been away on a holiday or something. We pulled up in the driveway and he said, well, Mum, the gnome's home. (laughs) Hollywood could not script something more tragic and beautiful and bittersweet. I think I learned that you have to go with your gut feeling when you are faced with uncertainty. People think medicine and science, you know, we've progressed to a particular phase in history where we know so many things. What I think people don't realise is how much we don't know. So this is the story of Robbie and the DNA detectives. My name is Vivian McKee, Robbie's mum. Gregory McKee, Robert's father. She was in, <laughs> how do you, how do you... She was infatuated, don't worry about that. <laughs> Cut that out. Greg and Vivian fell in love and had two boys, Robbie, born in 1982, and Stephen two years later. But something was up with Robbie from the very beginning of his life. We used to go to the baby clinic all the time, and the sister would say to me, You know, his head's growing really fast. Robbie was found to have a mutation in a gene called FGFR3. It causes hypochondroplasia, which is a form of dwarfism. But then came the genetic double whammy. Robbie and his brother Stephen were diagnosed with another rare genetic mutation that meant they didn't make vital immune cells called B cells. They pretty much had no immune system and for the rest of their lives, that meant they'd have to crowdsource their immunity from monthly infusions of immunoglobulin containing antibodies pulled from hundreds of blood donors. But that didn't hold the boys back. Fast forward to 2013, and Robbie's life is powering along. He's holding down a long-term secure job managing a liquor store. He's heading to the World Dwarf Games in the US to compete in basketball, table tennis and soccer. And he's in love. Oh, totally. (laughs) Head over heels. He met a girl in America and... We thought, oh, you know, he's coming to his own. Everything's going well for him. You know, there was talk of marriage and all that sort of stuff. And she was wanting him to go over to America. We weren't sure whether that was going to be a really good idea with his conditions. But go to America, he did. It was um, Independence Day, I think. He was with his girlfriend and her family and they had a family picnic, I gather, and they went tubing down the river. He got bitten by a mosquito and he got really sick. 
massive headaches and vomiting and um, she wanted to take him into the hospital. We said, no, I'll be fine. And very little thought was given to that mosquito bite after that. Robbie returned to Australia and went back to work, but he was unusually tired. Then one morning, the 11th of September, just after four o'clock, we heard this almighty bang in the hallway. Something was very wrong. He was trying to make it into our bedroom and he had, a, he had some tonic-clonic seizures. So he was rushed into, uh, into hospital, to the intensive care unit, where we, we spent about three days. Robbie was in and out of hospital after this. Something very strange was going on. Things were smelling and tasting strange to him. Turned out it was, these were auras he was having. He was imagining it was the mind tricking everything. The specialists suspected epilepsy may be triggered by a viral infection in the brain. His brain was clearly inflamed. They hit him with everything. They thought whatever was there would be gone by the time, within a couple of days, because of all the, the antibiotics and antivirals they hit him with. It takes a lot for an infection, a bug to reach our brain, doesn't it? I mean, generally our body does its very best to protect that precious organ of ours inside our skull. Totally right. Professor Michael Wilson is a neurologist at the University of California, San Francisco, and he's one of our DNA detectives in this story. It's a real pain in the butt, frankly, for people who are trying to develop drugs for diseases that affect the central nervous system because those drugs have to be designed in a special way to get through that blood-brain barrier. Um, so it can be make it difficult for drug development. But on the flip side, it's a wonderful thing for keeping out infections and toxins from the brain. In Robbie's case, they just couldn't work out what had attacked his brain. But he seemed to improve. He came back home and went back to work. But over the next two years, it became clear something was still wrong. Robbie had changed. He wasn't the happy-go-lucky, relaxed guy he was before. He was very uptight and very edgy. His memory had gone on him. And he got really emotional. Um, yeah, he was different completely. He was probably very scared, but um, never said anything really. The weird symptoms kept coming and coming. And he had these unusual ticks, you know, you could hear him swallowing in the back of the car. It made you feel like gagging because that's how how it sounded in his throat, you know. He got rashes, conjunctivitis, the shakes. He had two sinus operations. There were many times that we, we lobbed into emergency. But no one could work it out. Uh, eventually, we met with Dan Swan at uh, Westmead Hospital. So I met Robert in February of 2016. Who was a godsend to us. I'm a clinical immunologist and immunopathologist at Westmead Hospital, and I hold a second role at Garvin Institute, where I'm a research officer in the immunogenomics and B-cell biology laboratories. Dr. Dan Swan remembers that first day. Robbie wasn't walking well. He was holding his father's hand to steady himself. Immediately, it struck me that this was an incredibly rare scenario that I was already witnessing. Probably something no one else has encountered either. And when Dan Swan saw the scan of Robbie's brain, 
That is an incredible MRI brain scan for a 33-year-old. His entire brain was incredibly shrunken and the space that had been left is filled with cerebrospinal fluid, the fluid that surrounds your brain. Dr Swan admitted Robbie to hospital. He needed to investigate further and urgently. That's when I got Andrew Duggins involved. Andrew and I see a lot of very unusual patients together and I trust his judgment. My name's Andrew Duggins. I'm a clinical neurologist at Westmead Hospital uh, in Western Sydney. It became apparent even at that stage we looked into his case. He had had this slow decline over the preceding three years. I mean, it seemed that his brain was dementing. Yes. I thought somehow this has to relate to his profound immunodeficiency, his inability to fight infections. So began Dan Swan's determined hunt. He just didn't leave anything, any stone unturned. We went for every test possible. So I think it would be safe to say... I got the textbook out. Robert had the most extensive testing and looked at all the possible causes of chronic brain infection. The different herpes viruses, rare things, fungal things, bacterial infections, dozens of different viruses. Repeated lumbar punctures or spinal taps and you test the cerebrospinal fluid in which the brain and the spinal cord is bathed. Put the, the fluid in multiple types of culture media. See if anything appeared spontaneously in an unbiased way. We did everything we could. And the result? And we found nothing. We got nothing. They still couldn't find anything. But still we thought, ah, this must be, this must be an infection. Andrew Duggins, then came serendipity. Yes. And you happened to be in America, a chance encounter. By now it's early 2016, and things are very, very desperate for Robbie and his family. Dr Andrew Duggins is heading to the American Academy of Neurology meeting. You think of a room with 10,000 uh, neurologists in it, it's a scary prospect. But there was a speaker who was presenting the greatest advances of the preceding 12 months in neurology generally. And it, just one of a whole range of things she, she mentioned was this metagenomic deep sequencing, or sometimes called next generation sequencing, and mentioning the successes of the Joe DeRisi lab, Michael Wilson and his colleagues at University of San Francisco, California. What Andrew heard that day made him sit up. The team mentioned was using a cutting-edge genomic technique to essentially solve extraordinary medical whodunits. And the results they were getting for some of their patients were equally extraordinary. You can imagine I was just one of these 10,000 people in the audience but pushed my way to the front to try to catch this speaker before she left the, the podium at the end of the session to say, oh, who are these people and how would I get in touch? And she just basically said, oh, well, you know, Michael Wilson is very keen on getting some samples. He's got the technology. He's got some funding. Send him an email. So that's just what Andrew Duggins did. So it, it was an email by Dr. Duggins. I didn't know him personally, but he had attended a neurology meeting in the U.S. Well, I was very surprised. He emailed back almost immediately saying, yes. My name's Michael Wilson. I'm a neurologist at the University of California, San Francisco. And Michael specialises in infectious and autoimmune diseases that target our central nervous system, so diseases like multiple sclerosis and HIV, but also more obscure viral and fungal infections. You know, most of these cases, they're acute illnesses that present over 
days to two or three weeks, but... Some go on for years, even decades, undiagnosed or misdiagnosed after thousands and thousands of dollars of tests and treatments. There's the story of the construction worker whose mystery illness turned out to be, wait for it... The organism in this particular case turned out to be pork tapeworm. Oh yeah, I really hope you're not eating right now. Or there was the fellow who carried the rubella virus replicating in his eyeball for over 20 years before it was diagnosed. This team are radically reinventing how diseases get diagnosed. And a trailblazer behind the technique they're using is this man. My name is Joseph DeRisi. I'm a professor in biochemistry and biophysics at the University of California, San Francisco, and I'm the co-president of the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. Well, effectively, you're a medical detective these days. Some people have called you a maverick. You've called yourself a biologist who is a serious computer nerd. How would you describe you and what you do now? Well, my training is really in biochemistry, but I also have a love of infectious disease. And I remember growing up in the 80s in high school, wondering why it was taking so long to figure out what the cause of AIDS was. I've always enjoyed the thrill of discovery and investigation, and so trying to solve difficult to diagnose cases is always something we've kept on the side as something really fun to do. Yeah, I know. Only an inquisitive scientist would describe infectious diseases as fun. What's been the traditional approach to diagnosing a disease? a mystery illness to begin with? Well, the model for diagnosing a disease, especially an infectious disease, hasn't changed that much in a long, long time. You know, thorough patient interviews and physical exams and that sort of thing leads a clinician to make very educated guesses about what might be there. And there's are usually confirmed by some kind of diagnostic assay. And, and that's all well and good and works a lot of the time. However, there are many cases in which it doesn't work. And the guess is wrong. Joe DeRisi and Michael Wilson want to put an end to that guessing game. Instead of a doctor testing for diseases they think a person might have, they're using this next-gen sequencing to test for everything in the known universe a patient could have. These machines now enable us to sequence millions, if not billions, of pieces of DNA or RNA from a sample. And therefore, we can just sort of sequence everything that's in a patient sample, regardless of whether it's human or not. And that makes the informatics you know, challenging because you're looking for a needle in the haystack at the end of it. But on the other hand, it's very unbiased simply to ask the question, what is not human in this sample? I mean, that's a fantastic question because we are more bacteria than we are human, aren't we? So if you're talking about the gut microbiome or the total number of cells in our body, that's absolutely true. However, there are locations in our body that are truly are sterile. The central nervous system and the fluid that surrounds it is pristine. A healthy CSF sample looks like Evian water. So right off the bat, we know that there was something in there that didn't belong. We didn't know what it was. Uh, and therefore, the next part of the computational pipeline is to compare the remaining sequence to the known universe of other sequence that isn't human. You know, hundreds of thousands of piece jigsaw puzzle against a million piece jigsaw puzzle matching game. Which involves an enormous database of everything that's ever been sequenced by science and data's pouring into that public database every day across the world. But back to Robbie McKee. 
because the damage to his brain and body from whatever was afflicting him appeared to be irreversible. One option is always to do nothing. And we thought about that. And we discussed my fears about finding something that we couldn't treat. And we all decided that Robert would want to know what was wrong with him. Everyone who loved him wanted to know what was wrong with him. And so did his doctors. There was no results here in Australia. So it was the only way to go. The Americans were very confident that they'd get a result. Failure wasn't an option. They believed we'd get an answer. But the Westmead team first had to get uncontaminated samples from Robbie's brain from Sydney all the way to San Francisco intact. I remember they told us we need to send them a piece of brain that's about the size of the eraser on the end of your pencil. A tiny sample, but a very big deal because it involves full-blown brain surgery and highly sterile procedures, but they managed it. Uh, FedEx <laughs> came by FedEx. Now the race was on to work out what wasn't human inside Robbie's brain and cerebrospinal fluid. Embarrassed to say it was uh, midnight on a Saturday night. <laughs> Not 22 anymore and out on a Saturday night. A handful of years ago, the results might have taken a week. Now we're talking about 15 minutes of processing at a cost of around 2,000 US dollars. And that price is only set to fall, so this could all become commonplace. And so, the data came out again around midnight. In both samples, there was this virus that I honestly had never heard of before. There weren't a lot of sequences matching it, but it was in both samples from Robbie, and that was telling. Michael Wilson did what he needed to do to be more certain, and then he got on the email again in the middle of the night. I was a bit nervous to email back the doctors in Australia because one of the first things I read about this virus was that it and cousins of it had been seen, you know, in different parts of the world, but never in Australia. Which meant they might have a quarantine issue on their hands. That left me a bit unnerved. So what did they find in Robbie's sample? We found a virus, and the virus is called Cache Valley virus. And it's something we had never seen before, and frankly, I'd never heard of. So Cache Valley was discovered in the 50s in Cache Valley, Utah. What we now know is Cache Valley is a virus that's mosquito-borne, and it's usually uh, in livestock, sheep and cattle and things like this. Um, but it is not a well-studied virus, and in humans, incredibly rare. In fact, there'd only been three other reported cases, all in the United States, and all showing symptoms for only a short period, not three and a half hellish years like Robbie. And there's really not a lot known about it. There's some studies in which they've surveyed forest park rangers in the United States to see if how many of them have antibodies to this virus, and actually about 5% did. So it looks like there probably are more people exposed to it than we realize. But not in Australia. So remember that single mosquito bite that Robbie had copped while tubing down a river in South Carolina back in 2013? That was the likely culprit. So I ran back to the office of the microbiologist in my hospital. Dan Swan got Michael's email from San Francisco. And I said to him, do we need to issue a public health report through any of the government systems that we operate within? And he said, well, 
the first thing we need to do is we need to confirm it. And we were still in the process of doing all of this. And then we would let relevant people know. His colleague, neurologist Andrew Duggins, wasn't convinced. At first, like I think most other people, I was a little sceptical. I thought, ah, you know, these Americans, they've just looked for their own viruses. I didn't really understand the technique at the time. So I immediately did some reading and found that an Australian group had just a month or two before isolated a, a sort of similar virus. I emailed back, Michael Wilson said, great work, Michael, but... Surely it's actually this Australian virus. But he pointed out to me that in the analysis that they'd already done, this single report of this Australian orthobunya virus had already made it into their database and it was already one of the things that they had excluded. Still, as Dan Swan puts it in science, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. They needed to confirm that Robbie had been exposed to this unusual virus. But the thing is, he didn't make antibodies to any viruses at all, so that wasn't straightforward. They worked out that they needed a special tissue stain to detect the virus in Robbie's brain sample. It was on the maybe fifth Google search where I found a veterinarian at Texas A&M University who had done her PhD on how Cache Valley infects the brains of sheep. Mm. And that was the only person who I could find who had published a paper in which they'd done these special stains that could detect this virus. And so I emailed her. And Dr. Aileen Hoffman replied. Michael sent the tiny remaining sample of Robbie's brain tissue to her in Texas for staining. And sure enough, Cash Valley virus was there. This is when you need to stay up late at night on your computer and trawl through the literature for anything that you think might be helpful. Incredibly, a diagnosis had landed, finally. It had taken over three and a half years. But Cash Valley virus has no treatment, so was it too late for Robbie? Dan Swan was dogged at this point. He didn't want to give up on Robbie. So I only turned up two things. Dr Swan decided to import immunoglobulins sourced from American blood donors in case it had antibodies to Cash Valley virus. We could make him better. It could have no impact. There was a paradoxical chance we could make him worse. The infusion didn't work. Dr Swan also wrote to a Japanese pharmaceutical company developing a drug targeting the family of viruses that Cash Valley virus belongs to. The emails went backwards and forwards for days. Would they share it on compassionate grounds, even though it hadn't been tested in humans yet? It was risky. I was slightly relieved when they said no in the end. My greatest fear was that we found a drug that would stop the virus replicating and therefore stop Robert deteriorating, but not improve him because his brain was already so shrunken. He was now 34. We would keep him in this state, possibly for decades. Mm. And that felt incredibly cruel. Uh, we told him he had Cash Valley virus. We lied to him. We, we didn't tell him the gravity of it. I don't know if that was the right thing, but we told him we're going to get through this like we get through everything else. Um, but to get the diagnosis, it gave us some sort of um, 
relief to know that we had left no stone unturned and that we'd realised that we had done everything possible to solve it for him. You can protect your child, you can drive them everywhere so nothing happens. And you get taken out by a mosquito. <laughs> it's unbelievable. In meeting this girl in America, he was doing what every human being wants to do, right? He was trying to find love. He was trying to explore the world despite the incredibly bad hand that he had been dealt. And he was in the process of that radical self-expression when this third incredibly rare thing happened to him. You just, you can't script that. Robbie died in 2017. Robbie's father, Greg, died in 2019. My thanks to the family for sharing their story so generously and also to doctors Dan Swan, Andrew Duggins and professors Michael Wilson and Joe DeRisi. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Next episode, in Real Wild Child on Science Friction, the secrets inside your cells. I'll catch you then and catch me over on the Big Ideas podcast now too. I'm the new host of Big Ideas, your front row seat at some of the best talks, forums and festivals across Australia and the world. Find it on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love radio, you can catch Big Ideas nightly, Monday to Thursday, 8pm on ABC Radio National, right across Australia. See you there. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.